0: Good morning. My name's Aubrey and I add my greeting to Drews. It's very good to see you this morning. Today is the second season in the se- the second Sunday in the season that the church calls Epiphany. So Epiphany is a Christian tradition. It's the weeks after Christmas, the first few weeks after Christmas and it's the time of the year when the church historically focuses on the great love of God for all of creation now back in the fall we saw that that what God has done in Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection has massive benefits for us individually for us as individual people being converted to faith in Jesus Christ so that he's your primary love and your primary loyalty, this results in the debt of your sin being canceled. This means that you are justified and you're made right with God as an individual because of his sacrificial death on the cross for you. And every person who trusts in Jesus as the one who has paid for their sins, can live in the confidence that their forgiveness is eternally guaranteed. We saw that in the fall. But now for this season of Epiphany, we turn and we look out and see how the great work of God in Christ on the cross is absolutely for us. But it's also for all of creation. This is what Epiphany does. It draws our attention out. So what we're going to do this week, last week we started it, and for the next several weeks is we're going to begin as a church to to ask God to open up our imagination to see how big his work in Christ is. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to find a passage that we haven't had read to us yet today. I want you to find the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, it's like 97% of the way through the Bible, so it's almost to the map. So, my Bible, it's 1,214. So, that's where it is in my Bible. Hebrews, chapter 13. There's a sentence in this part of the Bible that I want us to start with as we're beginning to think more about the work of Christ and the love of God for all of creation. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14, just one sentence to start out this morning. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. One of the ways that the Bible portrays the afterlife, what happens to us after we die, is with the idea of heaven. Many people in the West, here in the West, have heard about heaven. Many people know that this this is a thing that Christians talk about and they hope for. It's something that's in the Bible. But heaven is not the only way the Bible talks about the afterlife. It uses other concepts, other ideas, other images. In fact, one of the main images that's used in the Bible to describe the afterlife is the image of a city. A city. That's what's going on here in the part of the Bible we call Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 14. For here, this life, this earth, we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Now, if you're used to thinking about the afterlife in terms of heaven, what you need to do is, look, it would be like if he said, but we're looking for heaven, Okay, it's talking about life after death, but it doesn't use the image of heaven. Here it uses the image of a city. And this is the same image that's used in our Old Testament reading this morning. Isaiah chapter 60 was about this city. And in our New Testament reading, Revelation chapter 21. In all of these parts of the Bible and in many, many other places in the Bible, the afterlife is envisioned As a city. And this is kind of confusing. Because for many Christians. Here in the West especially. If you were to ask them to describe. Heaven. I think many Christians at this point in time. Here in America at least. It seems that. Any description they give of heaven. Will be kind of fuzzy. It'll be about our souls, our spirits, uh, with God in some state of blessedness. And the reason a lot of Christians tend to think about the afterlife in terms of our souls and our bodies not being a part of it, the reason for that is because in the Bible, it describes the afterlife In that way. You see, in the Bible, we get a description of the afterlife in two different phases. One phase is those who die with faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that our bodies, obviously, they decompose. But our spirits don't, that our spirits are with God. At rest. There's definitely that part of the scriptures. But. When the Bible talks about that. And that's what we get our notions of heaven from. That is only in the Bible. An intermediate step. An interim state. Your soul. Resting adoring God, worshiping God. That's something that comes when we die. But the Bible is very clear. That is not the end game. That's not the end. That's not the last thing. The Bible is very clear that our ultimate destiny is that our bodies will be resurrected like these bodies. D, I don't know. That's my brother. I'm I'm hoping his will be resurrected. That our bodies will be resurrected like Jesus' body was resurrected. So you see, in Scripture, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected, and the Bible calls him the first fruit. So where's grandma now? Her soul at rest with God. But that's not the end game for grandma. Grandma. The end game for grandma is that she's waiting to get a resurrection like Jesus already experienced as the first fruit. Now, when the Bible talks about what life will be like after we are resurrected and have bodies, that's when it uses the image of a city, a city with bodies will live real lives, real physical lives. The Christian hope is directed toward a city, a place in which God's purposes, not only for our souls, but for this place, this earth, even this valley, that God's purposes are fulfilled. Life after death is ultimately about a renewed creation, a renewed earth. A creation that's shaken off its corruption and decay and its enslavement to what in science we call entropy. No more. No decay. No entropy. If you have a Bible, turn to our Old Testament reading. Isaiah chapter 60. It's sort of in the middle. Now in this chapter, we heard a vision... Of the holy city, life after death, when we have these resurrected bodies, we have a vision here of a holy city, and and pay close attention. This city is marked by business, by commerce. It's a center of commerce, a place that receives the vessels and the goods and currency It has commercial activity. In verse 6, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6, camels come from Midian, Ephah, and Sheba carrying gold and frankincense. In verse 7, this city receives the flocks of Kedar. And the rams of Nabaoth. in verse 9, ships from Tarshish, sail into the city's harbor, bearing silver and gold. And then in verse 13, we have to Zeke's great joy, costly lumber imported from Lebanon. Now look, at this point in time, camels were the beast of burden. They were the ships of the desert. And the nations who possessed them had incredible economic power and mobility. They were signs of wealth and prestige. The same with the ships from Tarshish. And here we have these animals and these ships and lumber and precious metals all appearing in the holy city. Now this thought must have been a pleasant surprise for Isaiah. And for his original hearers. Because surely they stood in awe. When they saw these symbols. These signs. These displays of technology. And culture. And commercial power. That all the other nations were mustering. It's like they envied. Ephah's camels, and Nabaioth's rams, and Lebanon's lumber, and Tarshish's ships. This raw, political, cultural, economic power. But in the holy city, all of these things are there. But they've been transformed. They're no longer signs of pagan cultural strength. They're no longer objects to be envied from a distance. No, in this city, the city that is to come, these vessels and goods serve a different purpose. And the vision Isaiah gives us is very explicit about the purpose of these things. In verse 6, Ephah's camels proclaim the praise of the Lord. In verse 7, Nabaioth's rams minister To God's people as acceptable sacrifices on the Lord's altar. In verse 9, the ships from Tarshish bring precious metals for the name of the Lord your God. And in verse 13, the costly lumber from Lebanon will beautify the place of my sanctuary. So, what we see here is that when sinful history comes to a close and God does what he has promised to do, we have this image of a city, a magnificent city, transformed. As Christians, we're learning here to look to a future with eyes of faith. We are learning to see a time of transformation. This is not merely utopian speculation or idle daydreaming. Isaiah 60 is a God-given revelation of what he's going to do and what life will be like. If you and I die before the Lord brings us to be, we will rest in God's presence. And then one day, as sure as the sun is going to rise tomorrow, as sure as the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, one day you will be resurrected too. And so will this valley and this city and this whole world. And it will be filled with technology. And culture, and commerce, and economics, and art, and education, and family. All of it transformed, redeemed, saved, cleansed of its idolatrous functions. And this is what, look, Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and most Bibles translate the next phrase, and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. That phrase, the fullness thereof, literally is, and everything that fills it. Those of you who've been reading the Bible, where in the Bible do we find the language, fill the earth? Genesis chapter 1, God commands humans, be fruitful and multiply and... Fill the earth. Now, what what does it mean to fill the earth? In Genesis 1, it does not mean put babies out there. Because the first phrase says that. Be fruitful and multiply. Make babies. All right? So, fill up the earth with babies. But in the next phrase, it's talking about something else. And fill the earth. What are we supposed to fill the earth with? Well, when you read the Bible, we're supposed to fill it with culture. With technology. With musical instruments. With all of the things that you spend your life doing. All of the stuff you do with your life. Education, economics, business, commerce. This is the stuff that fills up this earth. And so when Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it. It means culture is God's. Technology is God's. Education is God's. All this stuff that we've filled the earth with. It belongs to God. American technology. It'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. French art. Chinese medicine. Nigerian agriculture. It all belongs to God. And he will reclaim all of it. Transform all of it. Not so that it's unrecognizable. No, it's still the ships of Tarshish. It'll still be recognizable. It'll just have been cleansed of all of its idolatrous functions. It'll all be harnessed for serving God and God's purposes. And this even includes, get ready, politics. Politics. And I am very sorry to the Mennonites and the Libertarians, but Isaiah 60, here it is, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This was not a constitutional monarchy kind of moment in time. Kings at this moment in time were not figureheads. They were just straight up the heads. Kings will be drawn into this holy city. And in verse 11, we're told that people from many nations will lead their rulers in procession into the city. There's a lot going on here. For example, part of what's going on here is that the sins that have been committed in political history will be publicly exposed in the holy city. God will not allow the evil that politics has done to go unavenged. Political dictators will be led into the presence of those whom they have destroyed. Kings and queens will bow low before the widows and orphans they've oppressed. Cruel tyrants will hear the testimonies of those they have martyred. And white racist politicians will wither under the gaze of those they have belittled. But notice, it does not stop there. Look at verse 10. We see that kings from foreign nations will minister to God's people. In this God-given vision of the new heavens and the new earth, there is not an elimination of politics. Rather... The transformation of politics. Political authority will be healed and sanctified in God's great work. Politics will be stripped of its idolatrous and destructive patterns and restored to its proper function, which is servanthood. A properly functioning government will be God's servant for the good of God's earth and God's people. There is a view among some Christians that the only purpose of government is because people are bad. But here we find that government, just because it's broken, doesn't mean it'll be done away with. As Christians, we must have a complex view of government because we recognize the complexities of a world that is not only broken, but in, it is in the process of being restored by God's redeeming work in Christ. Listen again to one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Isaiah 60 verse 16. You shall suck the milk of the nations. I'll stop right there. We will enjoy the generous benefits of all the greatest cultural productions of all the nations of the world. That's what that's talking about. Ships of Tarshish, lumber of Lebanon. But it's the next phrase that's difficult. For Jeffersonian, American Christians, you shall suck the breast of kings. A good government, stripped of its rebellious and idolatrous designs, will nurture its citizens. Here is an image of government in the form of a mother nursing her child. What more profound, nurturing image is there? And this is what government will be. Not eliminated, but the source, the nurturing source of life together. In the new creation, the God who is both king and nurturer will in the end time bring milk from government. From the breast of kings, politics will become a force for the giving of life. Listen, there is no anarchic end. That's not where this is headed. King mothers will feed the people of God. Now, my response when I read this stuff is, Holy cow, how will that happen? What will that look like? And, I mean, this stretches our imagination to its furthest limits, doesn't it? That God, I mean, believing in the resurrection of the body is one thing. But in the redemption of politics? How is God going to pull that off? How in the world is he going to take a thing that... Yeah, we, we gripe and complain about here in America, but there are many people in our church who have seen a far worse expression of it. How is God going to redeem that? Well, if you have a copy of the Bible, turn with, you, turn with me to the last two pages. Our New Testament reading. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 is John's meditating on Isaiah 60 and hearing from God with, a, with a, a, a vision that carries on in the same mode. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. The lamb is the lamp of the city who will draw all the works of culture and all the rulers and all the peoples to himself. The lamb. That's how it's going to happen. Jesus shed his blood to rescue the creation from the curse of sin. And the cleansing blood of Christ must reach not only into our hearts and into the lives of individuals, but into every corner of the creation. Art and business, commerce, economics, aesthetics, recreation, politics, government. How in the world will the world Be healed. How will this planet that has suffered from our greed. And the animals who have suffered from our cruelty. How will so much healing happen? Through the lamb. The lamb's light. Will chase away the shadows. That have hung like a weight over racist and patriarchal societies. The Lamb's light will banish the darkness that has permeated the ghettos and the barrios and the reservations and the concentration camps. The transformed city will be ruled by peace and righteousness because of the crucified Lamb of God who is resurrected. Salvation and praise are because of Christ, because of his death, and because of his resurrection. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. As the Lamb of God is the great act of redemption. It is the repurchasing of that which has long been held in the grip of sin. The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it. Every system. Every philosophy. Everything you spend most of your time doing. This belongs to the Lord. He loves medicine. He loves education. All this, look, what are we doing right now? We are people who, Monday to Saturday, are full time employed in the Lord's service. As we're teaching and counseling and doing business and painting and parenting, all of that stuff is 100% God's. And how does God do all of that stuff? Through us, through people, through humans. And it belongs to Him, and He knows it's broken. And because He owns it, He's going to heal it, and that's what he was doing with Jesus on the cross. The lamb looks out on nature and culture. He gazes upon us humans and upon the vast reaches of the cosmos, and there is not a single square inch of it over which the lamb of God does not rightly say, that's mine. But this is not the cry of a child whose favorite toy has been taken away. Mine. No, Jesus will not gather culture and nature and people and politics to himself because he selfishly desires to assert himself or to seek his own profit. No, it is not that at all. It's because he longs to heal that which has been so severely wounded by the ravages of sin and he longs for all of it to do what it was made to do, which is to exist with its own integrity to the glory of God. So many difficult questions here. And in the four weeks ahead, we're going to begin to talk more specifically about this stuff. So much mystery here. So much we must recognize needs to be talked about and worked out. But at the very least, what we can do this morning is we can see that we do not have to abandon culture, economics, Politics, technology, we don't have to abandon all the developments that humans have created. You don't have to take off your Christian hat when you go to work. You are just as much in God's presence, serving God Monday to Friday as you are right now. At the very least, we can see that we do not have... To abandon this stuff. All the commercial and technological and political stuff that we see around us belongs to God. And He wants to redeem it. And He will redeem it. All of us are full time servants, all of us are in ministry. Did you see that in Isaiah 60? The kings will be in ministry. All of you are in ministry. Every one of you is a priest in holy orders. Your job is just as Christian, just as spiritual, just as much full-time ministry as my job is. And simply knowing that this is the case, of course, doesn't generate easy answers to so many of the difficult questions, but we must allow this knowledge of what God will do to backfeed into our lives now and shape our basic attitudes toward culture and technology and politics and art and commerce and business. It, it's got to shape our basic attitude and our expectations, and we've got to train ourselves to look at the worlds of commerce and art and recreation and education and confess that belongs to God. We have to train ourselves to do this. And if, in a fundamental sense, God is not giving up on human culture, then neither must we. We must share God's restless yearning for the renewal of every square inch of this world. The gospel is absolutely a social gospel. And a political gospel, and an educational gospel, and a commerce gospel. That's what Mark chapter 1 said. Jesus came preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? That the kingdom of God has arrived. What is a kingdom? It's it's a, a place ruled by a king that reaches into every inch of life. Every square inch. What is the good news? The good news is that God has taken hold of this whole world in his son Jesus Christ who is the king. That's the news that's so good. The news that's so good is that in his death and resurrection, Christ has said, of everything that you do, mine, that's the news that's so good. That, yes, on the cross, he was dying for your sins, and we should never belittle that. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. That is amazing. That is fundamental. That is absolutely. And it extends out from there into every square inch. So in the weeks ahead, I'll focus more on some of these implications and some of the very practical ways that we leave this room and move out into our culture as ambassadors of Christ. But in the meantime, there's one last thing for us to see this morning. Whenever Jesus is portrayed as the victorious lamb in the book of Revelation, The immediate response is worship. Worship. The heavenly citizens bow low when the Lamb appears. They bow low and they break forth into songs of joy and adoration. In fact, look over at the last chapter of the Bible. Chapter 22. Revelation 22 verse 8. I, John, the author of this. I am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard them and saw them, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And the angel said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with the other members of your prophetic family and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. It's one of those humorous portrayals of human awkwardness that we find scattered throughout the bible showing up here even on the last page of the bible but however misdirected they may be John's instincts were spot on our response to this great vision that god is going to redeem all of the, that all of the things you spend your life working for that old saying that everything I do is just going to burn up and it's saving So No! When the Bible says it's going to burn, it's a purifying burning. Not a destroying burning. All of the things that Bob has spent his life doing as a commercial real- lawyer, this is going to pass through the fires of God's transformation. The Mona Lisa. Your acts of forgiveness and kindness. You're staying up late to care for somebody, to make sandwiches. All of the things that we are doing, God is going to catch them up. And he's going to renew them and transform them. And our response to this would be woefully inadequate if it did not bring us to our knees in awe before the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the crucified And resurrected Lamb of God. May we all be filled with a sense of wonder. At what he did on the cross. What he is doing. And what he will do. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.